You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. What's up, Live Different Podcast listeners? It's Matt coming to you with another fantastic episode today with Manish Sethi. You may have seen this guy on Shark Tank sticking it to Mr. Wonderful, turning down the money for his company, Pavlock. Pavlock, this is not a commercial for Pavlock, but it really seems like a revolutionary tool and community to be able to help people form long-lasting habits. And I sit down with Manish on Facebook Live, and he schools me, and I love every minute of it. So if you want to get schooled on building habits, you should listen to Manish. He's a pretty smart guy. Without further ado, I want to bring you that episode and, of course, remind you, trips on sale at under 30 experiences, group travel, ages 21 to 35. That's the deal. We are looking at our discounting model, and I'm happy to share that it's important to get more travelers out on trips, especially those last-minute ones within 60 or 30 days from departure. If you got the money... If you got the time, go somewhere awesome, make a habit of it. How's that? Check it out. And if you have, that's of course under30experiences.com. And if you have any feedback for me, want to connect, want to build community, hit me up on Instagram at Matt Wilson TV. So sit back, relax, get ready for this episode with my friend Manish. Enjoy. Manish, how's it going? Hey, Matt, we finally made it work. How are you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. You know, the, the Facebook Live thing takes a little bit uh, to set up, but we're, we're happy we got it rolling. So hopefully we have some friends and, uh, yeah, friends stop by, ask you, ask you questions, anything they've ever wanted to know about the life of Manish. Definitely. I'll go ahead and share this on my page as well. Cool. Awesome. Cool. We how got are some people joining. What's up, man? It's been a while. Uh, yeah, it's been a while. I'm here in Costa Rica. If you hear any background noise, uh, people are jump-starting my truck because it hadn't been run in a, in a while. I've been up in Austin, but uh, everything's good. Everything's good. How about, how about yourself? You said you're in, you're in North Carolina and you spend a good amount of your time uh, in Columbia now? Yeah, so uh, I started a company, Pavlock, and it was based in Boston for about five years. About a year ago, I realized how cold it was and that we live in a time where most people can work online. Uh, so I decided to jump on a plane and get to somewhere warmer. In my older days, I spent a lot of time in, in Medellin, Colombia, because it's the city of eternal spring. The weather is 75 degrees every day of the year. And so I decided to head down there. And within a day or two, I felt like I found my tribe, just a lot of people who are like me. And I think I have more friends in 24 hours in Medellin than I had in five years in Boston. So I really wow. like that. That's cool. So I mentioned to you off camera that I've been, I got violently ill, unfortunately. I believe it was actually food poisoning from an earlier part of my yeah. trip. I ate indigenous food in Peru and then flew to Medellin and that definitely ruins my time. So do you live downtown? Like uh, it's called El Poblado, is that El right? El Poblado, yeah. Yeah, it's the gringo paradise, I think. Little different. It's got nice restaurants. It's kind of like a New York City Soho. So you get like nice restaurants. There's a lot of foreigners. There's a lot of expats. There's like co-working spaces. It's a great place. Um, and yeah, it's just like very easy. Like I walk everywhere. 
Um, prices are cheap. People are beautiful. People are very kind. Salsa dancing is fun. And what's really interesting to me is that it has the most concentrated group of high-quality entrepreneurs I've ever found in any city in the world. That includes really? New York. That includes San Francisco. It has like, I, I mean, like if you're there living there and you're an expat, you're almost certainly going to have a business. And what's cool is that when you go to Bali or Thailand or um, even Mexico, you see a lot of entrepreneurs, like people who are talking about getting started or thinking about starting a coaching business, or maybe they're going to start sure. a blog. But I think because Medellin is like a little scary for newbies, I don't know why it's had that history of fear. Um, sure. Plus, I think because it's on the American time zone, it enables people to actually have online businesses. So I've noticed that a lot of people there have teams, they're like agencies, they're ad, uh, ad people, they're coaches, but they have like a full team that's based in the US and they have clients that are based in the US. So I really, really like that. Instead of, I, when I've noticed that when I'm the smartest person in the room, I'm, the wrong, I'm in the wrong room. And in Medellin, yeah. I'm rarely the smartest person. So I like that. Wow, that's cool. That, that's really great. Yeah, I, I've spent a little bit of time in Bali and Thailand this year. And yeah, I hear you. I mean, I love it. Don't get me wrong. It's an amazing place to be, but it's not difficult to make friends. But as far as a, a network like like you're talking about, yeah, it's that is more difficult to to really create depending on what you're trying to do. And if, if you're already running an established business and you want to network with people who can make you better, basically, then, uh, yeah, then that, that makes a lot of sense about many and I got to come down and, and hang yeah, out. You definitely do. Yeah. So, okay. So tell me, tell me more about your, your journey. First of all, it took you four years or five years to realize that it was cold in Boston. Yeah. How did, uh, how, well, how did that happen? You kind of get stuck. So before I started Pavlock, um, and if anyone in here isn't familiar, Pavlock is a wearable device company, uh, that helps people change their habits. Uh, this is the device it uses vibration, beep, and electrical stimuli to both reward good behaviors and help stop bad ones. And so the company was uh, it was an outgrowth of my old blog, which I think is when we met. Um, I used to run a blog called Hack the System where I would do experiments. Uh, my readers would vote what I would do and where I would go. And so in, uh, for every six months or so, I would move to a new place all over Europe, all over South America, met in a few times. And... Um, one, around uh, 2012, my experimentations became around productivity and habits. So I started to do experiments on how to make myself write more as a blogger. And uh, in one experiment, I hired a girl to follow me around. And every time I wasted time on Facebook, she would slap me in the face. And uh, what was cool was that my productivity skyrocketed. I went from, I wrote like four, <laughs> like, or like two months of articles in like four days. Because... Like I only got, it wasn't really about the slap. It was about having the accountability, having someone sit down next to me, having a pre-commitment and then actually having someone remind me if I wasn't following through on it. So I wrote a blog post about it uh, called Why How I Quadrupled My Productivity by Hiring a Slapper off of Craigslist. And um, it turns out the word slapper means prostitute in England. So ah. the Daily Mail really loved that. And so <laughs> by the time I woke up, um, it had gone, that story had gone viral across all of uh, England. And it was crossing over to, I woke up to a phone call from someone from NPR, from National Public Radio, um, Ollie, and took the call. And so suddenly my story was viral. I was on TV. I was everywhere. People were calling me. People were flying me around the world to tell my story. And um, this happened for three days. For three days, I was famous. And then on the fourth day, I was like, wait, where'd everyone go? No one wants to hear <laughs> my story anymore. And I thought to myself, okay, how do I recreate this? How do I create another um, viral story that is like a take on this? 
So I called up a friend and I was like, yo, what if we made like a dog collar that could give me a shock every time I went on Facebook? My friend said, let's go to Radio Shack. So we did. <laughs> we built, we ripped apart this dog collar. He was an uh, electrical engineer, uh, engineer guy. So he helped me rip apart this dog collar, hook up some wires, program it into a computer, like a prototype form, where every time I went on Facebook, it would give me a zap. And I set it up and then I was like, hmm, this is actually really, really interesting. There's a million wearables out there that are tracking what we do, but this one's actually changing what I do. Maybe there's something deeper here than like a funny blog post. Maybe this could be a real product that really helps people change, change their habits. And that was the idea for Pavlock. Um, that was how I came, came up with the idea. What if I could create sort of a smart dog shot collar for humans that would really massively impact people's habits? Um, I pitched that idea around the world and this company in Boston called Bolt offered to invest in my idea and help me build it from the ground up. So I thought it was going to be another six-month experiment. I got like a Facebook memory recently and it's like, how long are you going to be in Boston? And I was like, only six months. I'll see you back in California after. Yeah, I didn't know. Right. Um, so I headed over for six months and I thought it would take, you know, what, six months to a year to build a hardware device. That is crazy. Uh, so it took me um, two and a half years to build the first Pavlock, over a million dollars to build the first Pavlock. And then I uh, ended up staying in Boston for from 2013 until early 2018. Around 28, uh, we had up to 20 people. So at some at one point, we had 20 people in an office place every day in Boston. So it was pretty pretty hectic, and it's it kind of built a huge company. So I thought I was stuck there, but then we started to shift our perspectives on hiring. A lot of stuff people started to become virtual. Uh, we moved away from hardware development and started focusing a lot on software development as well as marketing. And in 2018, about a year last January, I took a trip down to to Medellin. Realized how I could run the company from down there. And I decided to close my Boston office, uh, relocate the remaining people to be virtual. And um, I've been running that ever since. Cool. Good for you. So did the people that you had working for you in Boston, were they from Boston? Did you already have them move there? Because that can be a slippery slope uh, once you Boston. decide. Okay. Yeah. And it was time to, ch- to change. We were shifting our, when I was in Boston, it was like a hardware development team. Um, but now the hardware is complete. And so we've moved a lot Great. of the hardware development team to, uh, we, we don't have a full team dedicated to hardware anymore. We have like a, a manager who manufactures and designs and he's based in Canada. And so now it's been, it's much more streamlined. I went from 25 employees to four over the last year. We really decided wow. to lean, lean out the company as we were shifting, you know, we shifted from R&D and, you know, the majority of our employers, employees were R&D people. And now as we're shifting into a marketing and coaching company, we're starting to um, rehire, but from a much more strong pyramid base, if that makes sense. No, that, that makes sense. Uh, a, a while ago, or maybe when I, I first had met you, or a while ago anyway, you were raising money. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you had said that you were trying to raise absolutely as much money as possible. I'm curious if you still agree with that. I don't, that I, I don't think I would have ever said that. Maybe I did offhand, but that's not my sure. mindset ever. Okay. I found that, uh, well, certainly not anymore. I stopped raising money in 2014. And um, okay. if you saw my Shark Tank pitch, you saw me turn down half right. a million dollars from Mr. Wonderful. So the thing for me, I've noticed a lot about, uh, about, about startup companies is that they overraise. Um, they raise sure. too much money and too much capital makes you make a lot of big mistakes. I've raised capital from like Indiegogo, for example. We had a couple half, uh, almost um, like our highest campaign, we did almost $400,000 on. And so, you know, you get a transfer for $400,000 to your bank account and you think you're a king, 
but that money disappears like that, especially right. when you hire um, big hires because people eat up revenue and they start to cost a lot and they're recurring and they don't always provide the value that you think they will, especially when they're not revenue generating employees. Sure. So another thing that happens is if you look at hardware companies, like huge hardware companies, they uh, raise a ton of money like Juicero or um, Tracker or you know, even Pebble. Um, they raise a lot of money from investors. And what happens is that they raise so much that they don't expect that they're going to try to maintain a profit in their company. Their goal is to go for growth or go for the VC win. Right. But what often happens is that you start making mistakes. You don't hit profitability on each unit. You start thinking in that mindset that like, yeah, I'm losing $10 per unit, but I'll make it up in volume. Doesn't make any sense. And what happens sure. is that they, like, so a good example is Juicero. Um, Juicero is a company that's like a Keurig for like a coffee maker. It was a Keurig for um, juice, for juicing. At home. Okay. You buy juice pods, et cetera. And um, they raised, I think, like $150 million or something like that. It's so much money. And, right. Uh, and so when you have $150 million, you start to make mistakes. The CEO comes in, he's like, I want it to work like this. And the engineers are like, mm, I think that's not the best way to make it work. And he's like, I said, make it work that way. So his theory was you should take these two panels, you take juice in a bag, you take these two flat panels, and he created an, an, a uh, system that would make the, the panels go like that to squeeze out the juice. And it, it, he, he spent $100, $100 million on it. And then when it was released, Gizmodo or uh, some other, I think it was Gizmodo, did a review on it. And they said, it's actually easier to get out the juice by just taking the packet and using your hands and doing this. It's far oh, more geez. effective than this, this one motion if you do that. And so like, if he, was, if he was strapped for cash or didn't have enough money, he wouldn't have just told his employees to make a $100 million version of a product that doesn't work. He would have been like, what's the cheapest way we can do this? Let me find a prototype. Let me find a roller. Maybe a roller would be a mechanism would be easier. Like maybe a, a pulley system is a bad idea. How are we going to get this to scale? We need to make sure that people are actually willing to spend. It was $600 a unit. Who's going to spend 600 bucks on a juice device plus recurring costs? And so what I've noticed is that big hardware companies often self-destruct by raising too much money. I think all big companies, I think companies that raise too much money tend to self-destruct, especially because they begin to overhire. And when the money, dry, when the money dries out, they don't have an ability to, to, to succeed. So I always looked at this uh, at my company as a different sort of play. I'm not in this for 10 years to make a lot of money. I'm in this because I plan that this company will solve a massive problem in the world, the problem of human behavior. And I want this company to exist after I'm dead. And time is not the important trait here. What is important is actually impact and uh, ability to, to sustainability. So looking at it that way changed my perspective. Um, as long as I'm not dead, I'm alive. And I can't be killed if I, don't have, uh, if I don't have a downside, if I don't have too many assets that are holding me back. So any sort of thing that could potentially cause death and raising money is one of them uh, is something I try to push back against. Cool. No, that's great. And, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to uh, misattribute that quote, but I wanted to get into that because I knew you would be a great person to learn from that, that the audience could hear, hey, hardware companies are notorious for raising tons of money. Yeah. And I know you've been very strategic and very specific, including what a lot of people have probably seen you on Shark Tank. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you've answered this a lot of questions a lot of times, but for, for people who haven't uh, seen you on there, I'm, I'm curious why you turned the money down. For me, it was a uh, ethical issue. So I always, like when you raise money from people, note that you can't escape. I always say that the three layers of commitment go from having a child to raising money from somebody to getting married. 
you can get divorced and walk away and your life can be okay and you only lose 50% of your assets. But if you walk away from a business partner or you business partner, you don't jive, you're losing your company. In my case, I'm losing my baby. And so to me, the quality of the deal is far less important than the quality of the investor. And uh, I was offered half a million dollars from Mr. Wonderful on the show. Um, first of all, I didn't think the deal was that good. He wanted to pay back. Uh, so it was like not, it was a debt investment. But secondly, he also was on TV saying that half of, uh, that 3 billion people living in poverty in the world is a good thing because it makes them strive harder to like to succeed more. And I don't know if that's just his television personality, but I'm not going to work with someone who's like that. My goal is to completely fundamentally shift a lot of paradigms around human behavior as well as distribution of resources. And I'm not going after, I'm not going to go partner with someone who's a money grubbing shark. So uh, Good for this, you. In this case, I turned down the money. I think it led to massive negative side effects. If, if I could go back in time, I would have played that game a lot differently or just knocked on the show. But in the present world, it is what it is. And I'm glad I didn't take his money. No, that's that's great. Uh, Manish, we got some people joining in. We're, we're doing this on Facebook Live. If anybody's listening after the fact on uh, iTunes or YouTube or, or anything on the Lift Different podcast. But we've got, uh, I want to shout some people out who have been longtime friends and, and fans and supporters. So Russell Comer is on here. He's a, a YAC member and uh, uh, old under-30 CEO name, uh, Drew Pennington as well. Jason Solitaroff, someone who I played basketball with growing up. Uh, Alex Stobo, she was uh, one of our interns and in under-30 experiences. Uh, yeah, a handful of people. Diego Vargas was a a buddy of mine who I went skiing with recently. Uh, I don't know if you have anybody joining in that you'd like to say hello to, but uh, yeah, feel free. Eddie Brader's here. I guess I've met him through Facebook. Uh, Dwayne Gilbert says, well answered. Hey, Dwayne. Uh, DJ, what's up, man? Uh, DJ was at Bolt. That's uh, the, the incubator that helped me build my startup. So he was very instrumental in helping me uh, build my company from the, you know, the idea and uh, building it into hardware. He's a uh, pretty... Pretty killer dude with very interesting mechanical engineering skills. Woodstock, cool. Hey, what's up, man? That's awesome. Um, and, and I wanted to ask you the idea about going abroad and and being a, a quote digital nomad and and all this. That's probably a lot more difficult to do when you got Mister Wonderful breathing down your back or or all these you know big VC board or, or something like that. Is that something you considered? Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, I'm not in this to make a lot of money. I mean, if that happens, it's great. But my real ultimate goal is to build a sustainable company, specifically what the core concept of our company is, is we have this green light bulb that was in our Boston office. And the green light bulb only turns on when 100% of our users achieve 100% of their commitments over the last six months. So say we have 50,000 people and one person smoked a cigarette when they said they wouldn't, the light bulb doesn't turn on. And my life goal, my ultimate goal for the entire world, my life is to turn that light bulb on and keep it on forever after I die. And so to me, that ultimate goal is so large and I think attainable that time is less important than making it occur. And um, because I believe that we're a type of company um, that... We, we don't have any competitors in the, same, in the sense that I think we're a zero to one company. If you've ever heard of the book by Peter Thiel, sure. Zero to One. Sure, great book. Um, he talks about how most companies are like, um, they enter into a competition framework and they're like a one to 1.1 company. So they, they come in and they're like, all right, we're going to do accounting and we're going to do it faster or we're going we're gonna to sell pizza, but we're going to sell it for cheaper. And they're attacking an industry that already exists. 
And he calls those one to 1.1 companies, building a better mousetrap. I think that we're a zero to one company. So companies where the founders have some data nodes or some fundamental intuition that there's a problem in a sector, that a sector is attacking a problem fundamentally the wrong way, and that they think they have a better solution to, uh, to, to solving that problem. And by doing so, what happens is that no one is looking the same way. They're all looking, everyone else is looking this way. They're look, we're looking this way. Because of that, they have almost infinite time to actually build this new idea. And once they do that, once the founders unveil that sector to be real, they unveil an entire field, a pasture of green grass that other people can build into. So for example, take, um, take the idea of uh, bloodletting versus vaccines. Like forever, people used to let out blood because they believed that that would get rid of your toxins. And then this one guy's like, yo, 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 you know how everyone is dying from, uh, you know, everyone's dying from smallpox. How about I take just a little bit of the smallpox and I just inject it into your kid. I promise it's going to work. I promise it's going to work. He sounded crazy, but he was right and he saved billions of lives. And in the same way, someone like Google, everyone else is building these network uh, platforms where they're like, oh, we're going to create these like AltaVista style, Yahoo style directories where you submit a link. And Google's like, what if we fundamentally approach search from the idea of uh, number of backlinks become a rank of a score that gives you an answer? Because no one was looking in that direction. They created a fundamentally different style of search. And the Google ads industry created billions or millions of businesses out of thin air. And I believe that we're approaching human behavior in a different way. I think that other people are approaching human behavior as um, we need to either offer more classes or give a course, sell a course or give a fitness gym that you can come to, but we actually don't want too many people to come because we don't have enough space or we're going to have you give medicine as a pill. And I believe that there's another way to approach the problem, which is that there's a negative reinforcer that works way more than a positive reinforcer, that fear of loss motivates better than potential for reward. And by adding in the moment accountability as well as stimuli, kind of like training a rat, you can train a human. And if you can train a human to not eat unhealthy foods, start exercising, start sleeping more, you can massively reduce the amount of medicine they'll need to take. You can massively reduce the amount of resources they're going to need. And so that zero to one idea, I think, gives me a lot of time. Now, I know I got distracted from your question, which is how this was related to Medellin. My answer is that because we have so much time, we have no competitors, and we have a bunch of potential collaborators, that means I don't need to be focused on speed. I need to be focused on sustainability. And for me, sustainability has a lot to do with me as a human being being happy. And I notice that when I'm in Medellin, I'm happier. I think I make more money in New York, but I'm not that happy. I think I make more money in San Francisco, but I'm definitely not happy. And so because of that, sustainability is a core resource for me. Getting myself to build a company in Medellin, first of all, it drops the costs. It lowers my downside. Costs me, you know, like nil. I found that there's a a pretty budding group of technology universities uh, down there as well. So there's a lot of hires that are much cheaper than it would cost in America. It increases the sustainability that way. But most importantly, I feel good there. And I think that that's something that people who um, are building long-term organizations and companies. And I think you get this, obviously. Sure. I think, uh, but people in corporate world are raising money from VCs don't always understand that uh, the, the health and, and mental health and the happiness of the founder can overcome a lot of struggles far more better than if you are focused purely on locations that offer wealth. Cool. That's awesome to hear. And I think by you spreading your message, other companies are going to start to follow suit. And we're, and we're already seeing that. So yeah. I, I wanted to it's dive in with... Easier. It's easy now. It's not hard anymore. Even sure. 10 years ago, it was hard. Like sure. now... Well, I mean, like now I have T-Mobile internet, right? So I have American SIM card. I land in Medellin and it already works. It even fucking Absolutely. 
Like it could, it, it, this stuff wasn't possible 20 years ago and it was extremely difficult 10 years ago when I started traveling, but now it's easy. And, and depending on what country you're in, even the last three, four, five years have gotten exponentially, exponentially. better. Absolutely. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, so Manisha, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about, you're talking about healthy, you're talking about happiness, uh, but you're also talking about negative reinforcement. And I get your point that negative reinforcement just work, can work better, uh, especially, I, I would argue, short-term than positive reinforcement. But personally, right, and, and for people listening out there, I want to frame it for them. You know, I was somebody who, all right, lifting weights or playing sports and doing these things uh, growing up, I would develop kind of that Bobby Knight college basketball coach screaming at you in your head and being very negative, if not abusive, towards yourself. Mm -hmm. And as a guy putting on a dog collar, uh, you know, around his neck, of course, I understand that you're doing some of this for, for PR, but I wanted to get your take on negative reinforcement and how that can actually be good in the long term. Sure. I think that you're starting off with a vernacular issue, which is the word negative reinforcement has the word negative in it, which makes you think it's a bad thing. There's a, a bunch of stuff that I can talk about around this, but let me try to frame it in a way that's important. Um, negative reinforcement is, so we're talking about habit formation and habit change. That's different than habit cessation. So breaking a bad habit is a fundamentally different thing, and I'm not going to talk about that right now. I'm going to talk about changing habits and forming good habits. And when we're talking about forming good habits, there's this, this mindset that um, punishment and negative reinforcement are the same thing, and they're not. And there's this, there's this mindset that uh, anything negative is, or anything that like is bad is something that someone won't be willing to do to themselves. But I ask you this, um, when you were in college, did you ever have papers that were due, but you had trouble getting it done, but suddenly the deadline was coming up and you would get more focused and suddenly get it done by the end? Sure, of course. If you are getting a job, if you have a job at an office, and if you don't show up to work several days in a row, you get fired, right? So the, the removal of firing is the negative reinforcer. You're removing a negative stimulus, the stimulus being getting fired, and negative means pulling it backwards, so removing it. So what negative reinforcement we found is a powerful technique to make habits get started. Positive reinforcement is more important to make habits stick. Okay. Those two must go together. The entire framework has three parts. Negative reinforcement, positive reinforcement, and accountability. Negative reinforcement to get started, positive reinforcement to make it stick, accountability to make sure you're not cheated. So here's what we found for habit formation. Back in my old days when I focused on habit formation, when I was studying with BJ Fogg in the Habit Lab at Stanford and uh, working very hard on identifying exactly what makes people change habits, we found a couple really interesting techniques. To make a habit change, there's only one variable which matters, and that's consistency. It's number of days in a row in which you do a behavior. For something like a very easy habit, like after breakfast, I will drink a glass of water. It takes around 20 to 21 days before that habit becomes fixated in the mind to the point that it's harder to not drink a glass of water than to drink a glass of water. Think about um, when you brush your teeth. A lot of people, if they forget to brush their teeth or don't have time in the morning, they feel this weird sensation in their mouth. That weird sure. sensation isn't real. People have never brushed their teeth for thousands of millions of years, but suddenly that is real because your brain is it's more uncomfortable to not do it than to do it. Hmm. Now, forming a good habit so uh, what we found is so uh, very difficult habits, things like um, doing 50 sit-ups after breakfast can take extremely long, like almost 90 days before it becomes ingrained in the brain. So difficulty of habit times number of days that you do the habit in a row is how long it takes before it becomes harder to not do the action than to do the action. That's what I consider a habit to be. 
And what's interesting here is that it's very easy to get someone to say that they're going to go to the gym. It's January 1st, right? But seven motherfucking percent of people actually go to the gym. Like on day sure. three, think about how many people pay $1,000 for an online course. Only 8% of people make it to day fucking two. It's ridiculous. So, but on the other hand, imagine a, a simple bet where you say, I commit to my friend, I will pay him $50 for every day I don't go to the gym. By adding that slight, slight change, the conversation in the brain fundamentally shifts because the brain is more motivated by a fear of loss than a potential for reward. So what we found is that there's a really powerful way to combine all of this into one simple system, which we've built into our app as well as into our coaching program, and that's a betting pool. So we created it to start off with this gratitude app. It's an app inside of our phone. Um, but basically, what, how it works is that you fill out three things you're grateful for in the morning, and we and that's it. It's just like a gratefulness app. And of the people who started using it, only 2% of people are doing their entries. So we created this betting pool. We have this in-app currency called Volts, and we set it up so that you would bet Volts between $1 and $10 a day of Volts. And every day that you failed, you would lose that bet. But every day that you succeeded, you would win from the people who failed. What happened was a massive instantaneous shift. We went from 2% of people to 85% of people filling out their gratefulness journal every day. And most of them never quit the bet. They've maintained it for over 180 days, 85% success rate. So in the same way, we started creating a betting pool around a bunch of different habits. So one is like fitness. You take a photo when you get to the gym, right? You commit $10 a day that you're going to go to the gym. And if you fail by sending a photo that's approved by the, by the, the rest of the community, then you lose $10. But if you succeed, you win money from the people who didn't go. So what happens is we created this negative plus positive reinforcement loop where people are actually earning $5 to $10 a day just for hitting the gym. They're actually making back two times the price of their gym membership just by doing the thing they committed to. Most importantly, they feel like they're winning. They don't feel like they're being like, oh, I don't want to go today. I feel sick. It's more like, oh, I don't want to go today, but I'm not going to fucking lose $10 to Matt. Fuck that guy. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So this has been really interesting to me on the side of entrepreneurship. We started building this. Um, when I talked about those three layers of positive and negative reinforcement plus accountability, we noticed that the users who were using our app were having massive success, but some of them wouldn't use the app. They'd start, but they wouldn't join the bet. They'd start, but they wouldn't stick through with it. And specifically in our entrepreneurial class of people, they often get very distracted. They get excited. They buy something, but then they don't have time to use it. And it takes a little bit of time before habits change and before you, know, you can make a massive impact. So what we wanted to do was start to create a way that we could help entrepreneurs really, really excel. And we created this, uh, basically a coaching program. Uh, we basically created a program where you have a personal coach who breaks down your personality type with you, breaks down your goals and habits. And then we set a, a system where you, every day before you go to bed, you commit to three things you'll do the next day. And your job is to do at least two of them. If you fail, you lose money, you get shocked. Your internet turns off, whatever. If you succeed, you win rewards, you win discounts on the program, and you get to see yourself edging up the leaderboard. And what we found is by simply having a one-on-one -on -one coach who holds you accountable to stuff, as well as a reinforcement mechanism that offers both rewards and punishers, the success of these clients' businesses has skyrocketed. We've had multiple clients quadruple their business in less than two months just by simply removing all the distractions and most importantly, making a commitment to what they will do tomorrow and then actually doing it, which is something that almost nobody does. And it makes an impact that's almost impossible to explain. That sounds pretty amazing. Uh, Manish, while you're talking here, of course, I'm thinking 
as one of those entrepreneurial people that you noted that gets really busy and yeah, buys something and doesn't have the time to use it or, you know, really always hopes for the best and, and always have the best intentions. But yeah, it can be it can be difficult to follow through on everything that I intend and set out well, to think do. about your business. Like, so what are yeah. the things in your business that makes you the most revenue? I'm assuming revenue is a, is a core goal of yours. Sure, of so, course. So what are the, what are things in your business that actually make you make you revenue? We got to sell people trips. Right? Okay, cool. And on most selling people trips, is it usually done by email or over the phone? Uh, email, online. Okay. Have you ever done on the phone sales calls? Yes, but not we don't get tons of them. They're more just answering questions about the trips. Have you found that when you have sales calls with people that you actually close a lot of those people pretty often? Probably, yeah. So um, one thing we've noticed with a lot of our entrepreneurs is that the act of taking a sales call fundamentally shifts the business from kind of a passive hope, spray and pray to sort of a, we can close 30 to 40% of the sales calls that we have. This only works for things that cost more than a thousand bucks or so, right? Um, sure. I think your experiences do. Um, yes. So, and, uh, but like even like, so I'll talk about that in a second, but take your current methodology. Are there things that if you were to do in your current methodology that would close you more sales? I'm sure there are, yes. Like um, what we notice is that there's some simple tasks that entrepreneur people like you and me have planned and we get really excited and do it for a few days and then we get distracted and forget. Small things of course. like sending out daily or every other day emails, other things like improving your ads um, and creating new creative. Those things are really, really fun to get started with, but unless you hire someone to manage a project, uh, they kind of dissipate. And, Correct. And so what we started off by doing is having that coach work with you to define those tasks and, and they don't have to be done by you. They can be delegated, but they're tasks that are critical to the business. And by doing so, one of the biggest things is you stop acting reactively and you start acting proactively. Uh, we had this one client who basically had a great, uh, almost like a six, almost seven figure business um, in the SEO space. And he told us that he was actually, like, he was just busy all the time and tired and sleepy. And he was always reacting to his clients and reacting to his employees' needs. And so what we said is like, what are you actually doing when you're reacting? And he's like answering emails, answering support calls, telling them what to do. We were like, all right, none of this shit is important for your actual business goals. Like most of this is email that can be batched, right? So why don't we start off by scheduling a time of the day that you're going to do your emails and you're going to do your responsiveness work. So he, he was pretty proactive. He's like, I want to do it at 5 a.m. So our fucking coach wakes up at 5 a.m. every day to text him and remind him to get started. And he started doing these things and he realized that by 8 a.m. he had, uh, within a week, by 8 a.m., he was done with all of his work, plus had gone to the gym every day. He would get to the office and like he's like, I'm not answering emails until tomorrow at 8. So feel free to email them over. But now I have a whole day just sitting here. So we, <laughs> we, said, we, we said, all right, well, what's the next step? Let's, let's be proactive. Let's book some sales calls. So we got him to actually start going out and canvassing other clients that could book him sales calls. Within 20 days, he closed his first six-figure deal. Within 40 days, he closed two six-figure deals. He had almost tripled the size of his business in 40 days just by getting rid of all the scuff and focusing on the one or two things that could actually drive massive revenue, which we, we've continuously found. And, and this is something that um, I think you would benefit from a lot. Um, there is some magical power in a sales call. And specifically, you're not cold calling people, right? You're letting people book a call with you. So it's like, uh, imagine an ad campaign where it's like a short video. It's like an opt-in to a webinar or something or a short video where it's an opt-in to an auto webinar. Imagine a life where you could do your business from anywhere. Imagine a life that's business. Well, we'll show you the three steps that exactly how to do so. Just put in your email address for this short presentation. 
They watch a short presentation. Again, this can be automated. They watch this presentation. At the end, it says, if you're ready to change, we can help you. If you're ready to make a difference or really enjoy your life and get more productive while you do it, like we'd love to help find out what is the perfect spot for you to do. Where is the perfect place for you to go? Uh, please book a call with us. Your call to action on the webinar is a book a call. And then from there, you retarget those people with book a call pages, right? Now you have yourself or a salesperson. I hate doing it, so I usually have a salesperson who uh, basically accepts the phone calls and then, uh, again, they're scheduled and then has the call with the person. And what happens is that man, for a product around $1,000, $2,000, typically 50% of people will be closed. Often it's like 33% above that, but you rarely see numbers that are below one in three people closing on a sales call. So if you're trying to sell 10 slots, all you got to do is book 30 sales calls. To book 30 sales calls, you just need an ad that you spend 500 bucks on. If you can put for 500 bucks into 10 sales at 1,500 bucks each, that's $15,000 off of $500 plus your salesperson's commission. So what I'm getting at is that a lot of this is just about being proactive, about finding the little tiny triggers. But what happens is that entrepreneurs will often get really um, disheartened about that first change. Like, fuck, I hate making calls, man. I hate it. And to get me to do it, I had to start doing bets with my own coach, being like, I fucking will schedule calls or else I'll lose $50 to you. Ah. And by making that bet, it was no longer about me not wanting to do it. It was about me not wanting to pay my coach $50. And that became way easier. It was a stupid idea, but it worked so well. And in doing so, we started to book out more and more clients. We started to be able to close more into our coaching program and help those people do something similar for their businesses. So what I'm getting at here is that there's a lot of power in two parts. One is having somebody who holds you accountable with giving you and also gives you those uh, right ideas to what you should be doing in your business. And the second is just actually doing it. And whatever it takes is, I, I think that we have found the secret solution that no one in the world seems to understand uh, until they've experienced it. Have you ever done a bet like uh, about habits or anything? Like, like going to the gym? Mm, no, not really. Yeah. If you ever, if you haven't ever done it, like think about something personal in your life. Like I bet I'll go to the gym tomorrow. Like if you haven't gone in a while, make a bet with me or make a bet with your friend and be like, I bet you $50 to go to the gym tomorrow and watch your fucking voice in your head. It's so interesting. It totally flips. Instead of it being like, mm, not today, you're like, I'm not gonna lose $50. I'm not gonna lose $50. And so that, that small little voice shift, I found that by the best habit I've ever formed was forming the habit of making bets. Because once I did that, it's almost a magic pill. I press the button, I send the message and like, like yesterday, I made a bet. I was driving for six hours. I made a bet that I was going to make three new ads for a quit smoking pro product. And uh, I literally had somebody else drive the car while I tethered up to my laptop and used Facebook because I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to lose the bet. There's just it just never happens. So that kind of um, mentality of adding a negative reinforcer plus a positive reinforcer and then an accountability partner you trust just creates this consistent, explosive growth in both yourself and your business. That, that's pretty cool, and and I like how you. Nailed it right there about, yeah, losing 50 bucks is somehow this crazy motivator where on the other hand, I mean, if I'm talking to a blogger or a company, you know, a CEO of a company or a famous fitness coach or something like that who wants to do a trip with us and bring their community, I mean, that, that phone call could be worth thirty dollars or $40,000, yet it probably would be worse to me to not do the fit, you know, to lose the 50 bucks rather than the opportunity cost of 30, 40 grand, but scheduling the calls and, you know, hunting down the leads. It's just, it's just stupid, isn't it? It's stupid. It's fucking stupid. <laughs> and it's also so effective though. It's like the resistance you feel towards making a bet is really fundamentally 
this, like, I don't know, one of the big breakthroughs I had was that resistance is typically something I should lean into, that um, things that cause me to feel uncomfortable are the way. And that um, that feeling of resistance, like, if, if I say I'm going to write three posts tomorrow and I don't do it, I'm sorry, I failed. Like, I said I was going to do it and I didn't do it. So why would I not commit to it if I, why would I say it without a bet? What's the point of ever saying something about putting skin in the game? Because it makes you less likely to do it and you're still a fucking fraud. So why not just actually commit to it and then actually do it and then feel, even if you had to trick your own mind into doing it, dude, you did it. Like, I would love it. Right. I, say, I, don't, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I guess I am pressuring you if it's live, but I would recommend that you think of one thing, one small thing. It might even be things like do 20 push-ups, something tiny. But I would really ask for you like right now to think of one thing you want to do tomorrow that you can bet with me that you will do tomorrow. What would it be? Hey, what the scenario that you just laid out and that I just said was, worth a ton of money to me to, for me to be able to track down some of these leads that could do our custom experiences trips, but I get busy with other stuff and being reactive to other crap. But Does that I mean like looking, like making a list of, of potential leads that you think would be good to join yeah, the trip? Yeah, and, and following up with them, of course. So how many people do you think you could actually do in the next 24 hours? And in the next 20? Be conservative. I mean, conservative. okay, super conservative, we'll say five. Okay. So how about you make a bet with me that by 224, 24 hours from now, tomorrow, you'll have a Google Doc or a spreadsheet with five people's names that you that fit this category that you've emailed. Done. Does that make sense? Virtual yeah, handshake? absolutely. Virtual yeah, handshake? here it is. All right, man. Perfect. All right. Dude, cool. that's that's great. That's yeah, so send great. Me that list, uh, send me that list or post it on your Facebook wall by within 24 hours. We'll do. We'll do. I want to ask you one uh, one more question. If it's something maybe you can help me with, and uh, all of our listeners, of course, before I let you go, I want to be respectful of your time. But how do you say no? Depending, that's a very vague question. Uh, yes, I think that one of the things that has been very powerful for saying no are bets. So I've noticed that when I am back at my parents' house, and if I'm trying to eat an intermittent fasting diet, they'll say things like. Manish, you have to eat. Come on. I know it's after 8 p.m., but we cooked you food. You're being so mean. You're not eating our food. And I'd be like, mom, no, 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 fine. But when I have a bet, there's a great excuse. She's like, Manish, you need to um, eat dinner. It's after eight. And I'm like, mom, sorry, my, we did, my window is eight. And here's the bet. I can't go. I can't do it. And because of that, it gives you a really good excuse to not do stuff. So saying no on that end is for things that you know are going to be temptations, having a bet creates this non-cheatable barrier, which is very clear. But I think in the most case, by, by, I don't say yes to many things. So I think most people have learned that I say no to most things and they don't really ask me for that much. So that's kind of just a training thing over time that happened. I used to have new idea after new idea after new idea and start new project after new project after new project. But when I really determined that Pavlock was what I do for the rest of my life, it really clarified what my goals are. And so I no longer feel bad about saying no. That's great. Awesome advice, Manish. I was not a betting man before this, but uh, now I would, I would like to be. I am. I'm going to win that bet 2.24 p.m. Central Time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's on. It's on, man. It'll be great. And, I, and, and you'll see what was really cool is just listen to your voice. Because I guarantee if you don't do it tonight and you might not, that you're going you're, you're gonna to wake up in the morning and that's going to be one of the first things on your mind. And I will hold you sure. to it. So you will have to PayPal me Please. 50 bucks if you don't do it. Absolutely. Because um, that voice just changes and it's so intriguing to hear it. It's so cool. I, oh, yeah. I love I what you're doing. As well, if anybody is interested, uh, we're, we're, we just opened up slots for our coaching programs. We're basically taking people who are trying to change and improve their business 
or do a massive habit uh, shape, massive habit makeover over the next 90 days. Uh, so you basically get assigned a private coach and a group of people. You commit to tasks you're going to do each week and each day. And then we, through, through our app and software, as well as through our communication mechanisms, you'll uh, basically be held accountable to actually getting stuff done. And like I mentioned, our entrepreneurs have had insane success with skyrocketing their business, stop focus, stopping focusing on the mundane and only focusing on the important stuff and getting home in time for dinner for the first time. Uh, and you can access that program. There's a place to book a call where we can talk about it on our website. So if you go to pavlock.com, that's uh, P-A-V-L-O-K. That's P-A-V-L-O-K.com. And at the top, there's a button that says coaching. Just click that and book a call with us and we'll talk to you about it. That's awesome, Manish. Uh, yeah, thank you for your time. Thank you to, to everybody listening. I'll shout out a couple or more people who stayed till the very end here. Uh, Chris Booth just joined, a guy I went to college with. Caleb, who I've traveled to uh, Brazil and Bali with. Louis Lotman, he, I am sure you know Louis. Yeah, he's, he's down in, he's in Medellin. Uh, my friend Rebecca, who is in Costa Rica. Tony Ramirez from uh, Phoenix. Craig, yeah, bunch of bunch of really cool, peop- cool people, uh, and and people leaving comments as well. So yeah, thank you, thank you everybody. Thank you guys so much. That was a lot of fun. You the man, Manish. Thanks. Thank you.